Second Chronicles chapter 7. <clears throat> first and second Samuel, first second Kings, first second Chronicles chapter 7. <clears throat> and we'll read from verse 12 to verse 14. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Particularly verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Amen. Throughout the long history of the church, uh, there have been many notable revivals. In the 1700s and 1800s, there was the awakening and the great awakening or the first and second awakening. And they changed the course of the history of Christianity and indeed the history of the nations of America and Great Britain. Tremendous preachers like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, God raised these men up and they blazed a trail across the American colonies and in uh, England and Great Britain as a whole. And of course, that had a huge impact on the religious life of both those nations. Now, the first awakening was much more centered on dealing with the dearth in the spiritual life uh, of the Christian believers in the churches, drawing them away from the ritualism and the ceremonialism and the deadness of the church at that time and bringing them into a new, exciting and intimate and passionate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the living Lord. The second awakening or the great awakening as it was called was much more influential in reaching the lost and indeed millions of people uh, came into the kingdom at that time and evangelical churches were filled to bursting, and uh, all the evangelical denominations saw a great rise in their church attendance. In fact, new denominations began uh, to spring up. So all through the 1700s and the 1800s, uh, we had that happening. And then into the 1900s, in the early 1900s, uh, for example, 1906, uh, we had the, the great Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. And this, many believe, was the birthplace of the modern-day Pentecostal movement, which, by the way, is the largest, fastest-growing segment of the Christian church on earth today. And this happened in a little, well, it was a big wooden hut, could we say, and it was a black preacher. And God moved in that congregation mightily, 
And people from all over the world then began to visit there. And they caught the fire of God and they would take that back to their congregations, to their nations, and things began to spread uh, through that. Of course, the Azusa Street Revival actually had its roots in the Welsh Revival in 1904 and 105. Uh, because the Welsh Revival, even though it wasn't a Pentecostal revival, but it had a great impact on Pentecostalism. And, and people from America began to hear what was happening in Wales, and people from Los Angeles began to hear, and people visited and went back. Uh, and, the, and the early roots of Azusa Street actually came from the influence of the Welsh Revival, uh, which was just prior to that. And so the Welsh Revival, by the way, not only affected Wales as a nation, uh, but even into Scandinavia and India and Africa and into Latin America. So where these revivals were, they didn't just stay localized. They began to spread out and they began to impact uh, not just cities or regions, but whole nations for God. And, and oftentimes the, the impact was far-reaching. Revival begins with individuals. And from an individual, it can spread to a village or a town or a city or a region, and as I said a moment ago, even just even a whole nation. And a little revival actually is a sovereign act of God, and yet it would seem at least that there are some conditions that would have to be met uh, in order for God graciously to pour out His Spirit upon thirsty-seeking souls. And in Second Chronicles chapter 7, where we just read there, Solomon uh, had completed the building of the great temple. And uh, he had prayed a wonderful prayer and made many sacrifices. And then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings. And the glory of God filled the temple to such an extent that the priests could not stand to minister. In fact, they couldn't even go into the temple. And outside, they and the whole congregation began to fall on their faces before God and cry unto God, Great is the Lord, and His mercy endures forever. It was a powerful time of great impartation of the Holy Spirit that came down amongst them. If a nation forgets God and the heavens are shut up against them and if the destroyer is devouring the land and pestilence is sweeping the nation. In other words, when that nation is heading for judgment, when that nation is on the edge of destruction, the time is ripe for the people of God to cry out and ask God for mercy and to send revival. And this is what has happened over the years in various nations. And the revivals that we had just mentioned a moment ago, uh, we find that those nations were in a terrible state. Spiritually, they were at a very low ebb. Compromise, indifference, apathy, that was the hallmark of the church in those nations at that time. The spiritual temperature was cold at best, and it was lukewarm. At worst, because God hates lukewarmness. The churches were dying on the vine, and somewhere, somebody in the midst of that dire situation spiritually, somewhere, somebody cried out unto God. Somewhere, somebody longed for the presence of God to come and to touch them and to touch 
their nation. Who would argue that many nations today, including Britain and America, are in such a state? Church attendance in Great Britain and America is declining rapidly. Rapidly. It's dropping amazingly. Secularism, humanism, atheism is on the increase. God is being mocked. Christians are being ridiculed. The Bible is being scorned. The illegitimate birth rate in Great Britain is the worst in Europe. The consumption of alcohol among young people in Great Britain is the worst in Europe. The only thing that can prevent us going headlong over the precipice is a revival if God would be pleased to send one. If God would be pleased to send one. It is a sovereign act of Almighty God. But He's looking for people who are desperate and hungry and wants to see His move. In verse 7, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now let me just state immediately right away here that this verse specifically refers to Israel. If my people who are called by my name the only people in history, the only nation in history that ever had a covenant with Almighty God was Israel. The only people that he called as a nation, my people, was Israel. So this is specifically referring to Israel as a nation. However, the principle of it applies to us as believers today because in a sense we are now as believers God's people. We are a holy nation of God. Amen? So it has a, a reference to us, if you will, even though it's specific about Israel. Notice that the spiritual temperature of the land, it seems to be contingent upon the spiritual temperature of God's people. If the spiritual temperature of God's people is low, you can be sure the spiritual temperature in the whole land is going to be low. The health of the land is dependent upon the health of the church. In Proverbs 29, verse 2, it says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. There's a difference when righteousness is exalted in a nation. And there's a difference when wickedness is exalted in a nation. But when the church's temperature is high and righteousness is exalted, then that nation will be blessed of God. God will be pleased to visit that nation. When God wants to start to change a nation, He starts with His church. If my people who are called by my name, notice what it says, shall humble themselves. Spiritual humility is the first step to personal and national revival. Humility. Matthew 5, verse 3, The first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And what that simply means is this. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual condition before a holy God. That's what that means. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you realize where you are before God, when we recognize our condition before God and acknowledge that perhaps we're not where we should be before God, we're not where God wants us to be before Him, that our spiritual temperature is low, then we humble ourselves and admit that before God, privately, individually, but also corporately as a people and as a church and as a nation. Are our lamps burning brightly or dimly? Is our fleece wet with the dew of heaven or is it dry as dust? Sometimes we've got to ask ourselves the hard questions. We've got to take spiritual inventory. Where are we today before God compared to last month or last year or 10 years ago? Where are we? And this is what God wants us to do. The land is sand church in Revelation 3 was a church that did not humble themselves. They said that we have increased in goods, that we have many riches, that we have all that we need. That's what their mantra was. But the Lord says, instead you are poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. They did not see their condition before holy God until Jesus pointed it out. If my people shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Revival, whether it's personal or national, will not, cannot come without prayer. God will not move without somebody somewhere praying. Those of you who are saved and born again in this house today, are the fruit of somebody's prayers. Somebody somewhere, maybe a family member, maybe somebody in the workplace, maybe a school friend, somebody prayed for you and God moved. The Holy Spirit moved in your heart, but somebody was praying. And so personal revival, revival in church, revival in the nation has got to start with prayer. And here is the truth, by and large, in the Western church, the prayer meeting is the least attended of all of the meetings in any church in this land. It doesn't matter how big the church is. Even though they may get many more than a smaller church to the prayer meeting, but in comparison to their overall size, in comparison to their Sunday attendance, you can guarantee it's going to be the lowest of all of the meetings in church. Why is that? Why is that? We make every excuse imaginable. Honestly, we do. And we justify ourselves. The point is we just can't be bothered. Try to be so blunt and brutal about it. We just can't be bothered. And then we wonder why revival tarries. Because God's not going to move until people are hungry, until people cry out to Him to move. And then He'll move. And pray and seek my face. Pentecost followed 10 days of prayer. 
The 120 met in that upper room for 10 days. Yes, I'm sure there was other things done. I'm sure there was scriptures read. I'm sure there was singing done. I'm sure there was other things happened. There's certainly a little bit of business on. Uh, somebody else was appointed in Judas's place. But by and large, it was prayer. They prayed. Jesus says, go and wait until you be endued with power from on high. And they waited and they tarried and they prayed and they sought God's face. And what happened? The day of Pentecost came. And the church has never been the same since then. You say it's too late or it's too early. It's the wrong night or it's too loud or it's too quiet or people pray too long or people doesn't pray enough. I once heard 500 Koreans all praying at the same time out loud <laughs> in unison. Can you imagine that? 500 of them. <laughs> it was like a great roar went up to God. Pastor told me one time he was in Yonggi Cho's great church. It holds 50,000 at a time. They have something like half a million members. You can only go once a month to church so you can actually get into the church. It's hard for us to understand that, isn't it? The biggest Pentecostal church there, the biggest Presbyterian church there, the biggest Methodist church is there. Half the nation are born again. It's any wonder. Pastor told me, he says, when that church began to pray, can you imagine 50,000 people all praying at the same time? He says, you thought the roof was going to lift off. It's any wonder they're in continual revival. It's any wonder everywhere you go. One of those Monty Python guys that does those travelogues, I forget his name right now, he travels all over the world and gives a sort of documentary. He says when he went to Korea, he says everybody he met was a born-again Christian. That seemed that way to him. From the moment he got to the airport to he left the country, everybody he met. Is it any wonder God's doing a, such a work in that nation? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves <clears throat> and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Notice the three things, humility, prayer, and repentance. Those are the key ingredients in revival. Humility, prayer, and repentance. Repentance is not only a change of mind, it's not only a change of heart, it's a change of direction. It's a turning away from and a turning on to. It's a turning away from that which is worldly, from that which is sinful, from that which distracts us, and it's a turning on to God. And God looks for that and expects that and He wants that. And when He sees that, He's going to move. Things is going to change. When we turn away from all those temptations and distractions of the world and we set our course upon God, we are to be salt and light in this world. We set the standard. If the world looks at us and sees no difference, there is no difference. Did you hear me? If the world looks at us and sees no difference then there is no difference. Something has to change. Notice this, but the Lord says, if we humble ourselves and pray and repent, if we do those three things, then He will match that and He will do three things. He will hear from heaven and He will forgive us our sins and He will heal our land. He's looking to see what we will do. And whenever we do those things, 
and he will forgive and he will hear from heaven and he will hear land. Church in the Ukraine that we have just come from are praying for revival. They are exercised. They are desperate. They want to see God move in their city. It's quite a big city, Ismail. It's 80,000 inhabitants. It's quite a big city. And there are quite a number of born-again churches in it. You know, the Ukraine, since it broke away from the Soviet Union, has seen revivals. And they've seen a great increase in the number of born-again people. But they're not happy there. Alexander told me personally, he says, many years ago there was a revival. He says, lots of people got saved and lots of churches were full. But he says, somehow we've lost a lot of that. And he says, we need to get God to move again. Well, we need to get God to move again in our country, don't we? Let me just tell you some of the things that I told them. You see, part of what you saw on the screen today was the day after we arrived. The day after we arrived, they had two days, the day before we got there and the day we got there. And they had a, a, a Ukrainian pastor there on the day before we were on, and then they had us on the next day. And it was a, it was a teaching thing about teaching, teaching the church. And one of the things, because I knew they were keen on revival and wanted to talk revival, one of the things, I didn't preach that message, by the way, but one of the things I did was what I'm going to do now with you. I told them about the revival in Ireland, just to encourage them. And I want to tell you this morning, just to encourage us, because we need to be reminded that what God has done in the past, He can do in the future. That He's not bound by the past. It's a new day. But God still wants to come and do something in our nation. In 1859, it was called the year of grace. It was a year that changed the course of Christianity in Ireland. Never since the days of St. Patrick had Ireland ever seen anything like this, particularly the north of Ireland. Because by and large, the Roman Catholic Church fought against it. By and large, although many, many Catholics were born again. But this didn't start... 1859 in Ireland, it started in 1857 in America. In New York City, the Dutch Reformed Church, they sent a, a preacher, Jeremiah Landfear. Jeremiah Landfear was sent as a city missionary to Lower Manhattan, to the business quarter. And his task was to reach the businessmen of Lower Manhattan with the gospel, win them to Christ. And so he started out with great enthusiasm. But he soon discovered that after a while, he wasn't making any headway at all. Nothing was happening. Nobody was getting saved. Nothing. And so he took a great burden of prayer to pray for the city. And he printed some handbills. And he handed them out. And he set a date, the 27th September 1857, on a Wednesday at 12 o'clock noon, the first prayer meeting was to be held in his church building. And so he opened a room for people to come. And he sat there on a bench at 12 o'clock waiting for the people to come and pray for the city. Five past 12, nobody came. Quarter past 12, still nobody came. 
And he was getting very anxious and he was walking up and down. Did I do the right thing? <laughs> is God going to move or is he not going to move? What's going to happen? Because nobody's coming. 20 past 12, nobody came. 25 past 12, still nobody, just himself sitting there. 12.30, he heard footsteps coming up the stairs. One person came. Then another, and another, another. Six people. That's all he had, just six people on that first prayer meeting. And so they prayed for New York City. The next week, following Wednesday, 20 people came. The third week, 50 people came. They had to start opening up other rooms because it was a little small room he was in. And then they decided after the third week, because people were coming now, instead of having it every week, they're going to have it every day. And that church became so full of people praying that God moved mightily. In 1859, in that city, 50,000 people had come to Christ because of those prayer meetings. Unsaved were coming to the prayer meetings and they were getting saved. <laughs> Businessmen was getting saved all over the city. In two years' time, over a million people in America had come to Christ because that one man held that first prayer meeting that only six people came to. But he was desperate and God heard the cry. And the news of that revival the news of what happened on Fulton Street, Lower Manhattan, New York, began to filter into Great Britain and into Ireland. The Presbyterian Church had a, like a synod or a conference, maybe they would call it, in Londonderry. And they decided to send two ministers over to see it. And they came back with a great report. And people began to get hungry for God to move in Ireland, in revival. Now it's interesting that at the very same month, in the very same year that Jeremiah Lanfair was doing that in New York, that four young men, I'll give you their names, James McQuillan, McQuillan, James McQuillan, Jeremiah Manili, Robert Carlyle, and John Wallace, four young men, some of them not long saved, their minister, their local Presbyterian minister, said to him, do you not care about your loved ones and about your neighbors who are careless about the things of God? Can you not get a Sunday school going for them and teach them the things of God and pray for them and get them saved? So they decided that they would start to hold a prayer meeting for believers on a Friday night in an old schoolhouse in Kells near Balamina. And this was September 1987. And it was a cold winter. And they had to bring firewood to light the fire in the old schoolhouse because they were freezing. And during those winter months, they prayed. Just the four of them came. And then two more men joined them. And nothing was happening. Nobody was getting saved. But then on New Year's Day in 1858, the first convert was one for Christ. And it never stopped after that. People were getting saved night after night after night after night. And then other prayer meetings began to start. And then other people joined them. And a whole prayer movement began to grow up all over Ulster. People were getting hungry for God. 
And when you time you come into 1859, that year, the year of grace, the revival began to break out all over the country. Started there in that little schoolhouse, moved to Hockle, to Ballymena, to Coleraine, and then all over, and then to Belfast, and to Armagh, everywhere it moved. By the way, Moira was missed. Revival never touched Moira. Did you know that? How do I know that? Because I checked up. I went to the Linden Hall Library a few years ago and I went on to those, because the newsletter gave reports of the revival in Northern Ireland. Reports was in it daily. And I looked at all those reports. All the, went out for two or three days, looked at all those reports. You get it on that film, you know. And it was past. Moira was past. Lurgan. People was getting saved galore in Lurgan. They're falling on the streets asking God for mercy. Maybe it's because the established church wouldn't let John Wesley preach in their church when he came through Moira. He had to preach out in the grass. Holy Spirit will only go where he's welcome, you know. And he just bypassed here and moved up the road to Lurgan. But anyway, wonderful things began to happen. The prayer meetings and churches were filled to overflowing. They couldn't get halls big enough to hold the people. Sunday meetings and church was filled. There's church in Balamina was a thousand seater. And one of these young men came to give testimony what God had been doing in Kells. There was that many people came to the church. There was that many people in the balcony. They had to, they had to stop the meeting in case the balcony was going to collapse. There was that many people in. There was 3,000 people standing outside in the street. People were getting saved. They were falling on their knees and they were crying unto God for mercy. Some of them were crying for hours, for hours and end, for God to have mercy on their soul. They thought they were going to hell immediately. This was a spirit of conviction that had come across schools. Children in schools were crying unto God for mercy. Teachers saying that and getting saved too. It was wonderful. It was happening all over the place. God was doing mighty, mighty things in the nation. Was it opposed? Yes, it was. There was some people who opposed the move of God. And this is fanaticism. Because people were crying and screaming. Preachers had got up to preach and they couldn't finish their message. There's that many people crying all over the place to get saved. Sometimes preachers never even got to preach. They just got up, and when they got up, then people start to fall down on their knees in church, sometimes in the street, farmers in the fields, children in school, because the spirit of conviction came upon them, and they had to deal with God. We haven't seen that, sure we haven't. We've never seen that. We haven't even seen it in our churches, never mind on a national scale. But this is what was happening when revival came to, to Ireland in 1859 the year of grace. Do you know by the time that year was finished, 10% of the population of Northern Ireland got saved. Can you imagine if 10% of Moira got saved in one year? That would be great, wouldn't it? Our churches would be filled, wouldn't it? What if 10% of Belfast got saved in one year? 10% of the whole country in one year. A hundred thousand people in one year. That's a lot of people, isn't it? Churches were filled overflowing. New churches had to be built. In the Botanic Gardens in Belfast, they decided that they would hold a great rally to talk about the revival. 
40 to 50,000 people came. The trains were full. Apparently they're on the roofs of the trains to get there. And they were singing the songs of Zion the whole way there and the whole way back. Now, of course, this was the day before they had PA systems that we have. And so they would, because there was that many people, one person couldn't preach to them all. So they split them up into 1,000 here and 2,000 there and 500 here or 2,000 over there. And, and, and ministers from all over began to share what was happening in their region, in their area, in their village, in their town with a, with a revival. Children, there was hundreds and hundreds of children at that great rally and they would take them over to the side underneath the trees of the shelter. And young boys of 14 and 15 would get up and tell what happened to them and children were getting saved by the scores. It was wonderful. God was doing such a great thing. Armagh, 20,000 people met in Armagh to hear about the revival. 20,000 in the open air. Can you imagine that? And hundreds of them were getting saved all over the place. People were knocking on ministers' doors at three in the morning, weeping and crying, what must I do to get saved? I can't sleep. <laughs> that would make a change, wouldn't it? Jeremiah Manili, one of the leaders of the revival, he gave a, an account of the prayer meetings. This was 1903. Looking back, he gave an account of what it was like in the prayer meeting. This is what he said. 1903, Jeremiah Manini gave the following account of the prayer meeting. He says, The prayer meeting was started in the autumn of 1857 and continued for three months before there were any visible results. Two more men joined in the prayer meeting during that time. One was an old man named Marshall and the other a young man named Wasson. On New Year's Day, 1858, the first conversion took place as a result of the prayer meeting. But after that, conversions every night. The end of 1858, about 50 young men were taking part. Women were not allowed during the first year, but after that, they had a prayer meeting of their own. Why was that? Really here. We had so much opposition and persecution to encounter. Can you, can you believe that people would oppose prayer meetings and persecute them for praying for revival? But they did. So, he says, we had so much opposition and persecution to encounter that we did not think it advisable to allow women in the prayer meeting. The world would have said the meetings were held only for the purpose of flirtation. Remember, these were young men. And if young women had started to come, then, ah, you see, it's only this boy meets girl thing. It's not really spiritual at all. So they said, no. We'll just meet ourselves because we don't want the world misunderstanding what we're doing. We did not allow the unsaved in. It was a fellowship of Christians met to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon ourselves and upon the surrounding country. This was one great object and burden of our prayers. We held right to the one thing and did not turn off to anything else. The Presbyterian minister, the Reverend John H. Moore, was favorably towards us all the time, but many of the people ridiculed our praying for an outpouring of the Spirit, saying that he had already been poured out in the day of Pentecost. But we replied that the Lord knew what he wanted, what we wanted, and we kept right on praying until the power came. <laughs> uh, they would not be put off. And what a revival it was. That changed our nation. Four young men started praying, and it changed our nation. Could God do that again? 
course he could. Of course he can. Does he want to? I think that he does. Do we need it? Absolutely. Don't we? We really, really need it. Maybe we're not as bad as the rest of the UK as far as church is concerned. We're probably the biggest church attendance in all of the UK per head of population. Certainly there's more churches in our country per head of population than anywhere in Europe. But that doesn't mean to say we have revival today. Many of those churches were their fruit and the results of that revival I've just talked about. But that was 154 years ago. We haven't had one of those since. We have had many once. W.P. Nicholson's tremendous move of God under his ministry. I remember in East Antwerp when I was growing up, there was hundreds of people getting saved. It was a great move of God too. But that was just areas. Just select areas. But nationally, now we haven't seen it in 154 years. But boy, we need it, don't we? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.